0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Today, I have the happy duty of announcing that this episode will mark a new series of sorts. Specifically, the next three episodes are going to cover the life and times of Ulysses S. Grant. The man, the myth, and the legend. You might wonder as to exactly why there are so many episodes on the life of this one man. And well, quite frankly... This is not even his whole life, this is just the years leading up to the Battle of Belmont, where we will pick up our story again. But he lived a truly fascinating life, and it was one that in many respects emblemized the nature of Americans themselves. So without further ado, let us begin. Episode 56, Who is Hiram Grant, the Accidental Soldier? In the spring of 1822, a boy named Hiram entered this world, the son of Jesse Grant and his wife. It was hardly a glorious start to the boy's life, though not a cruel or miserable one either. His parents lived in a cottage in southeastern Ohio, and Little Point Pleasant even today is but a small village. His full name read, Hiram Ulysses Grant, and we might speculate, perhaps, that behind the choice of the boy's middle name lay a certain restlessness on the part of his father Jesse. The mythical Ulysses was a semi-divine hero-king, a wanderer and traveler cleverer than any other Greek hero. Jesse, perhaps, took inspiration from his own wandering, yet he most clearly desired a name that carried the echoing dignity of a half-mythic age. In time, the name would prove apt indeed, Before the boy Hiram would finish his earthly time, he would see nearly every corner of America, fight in Mexico, rise from a humble station to become the greatest military commander of the age, attain the presidency, and travel around the entire world. He would wage war and negotiate peace, earn loyalty time and again, then face immense betrayals more than once, and finally get bailed out of bankruptcy by Mark Twain himself. If we, in these latter days, have missed the romance of his life, that is perhaps entirely fitting. Neither the boy Hiram nor the man Ulysses ever really quite got on with the romantic spirit of the age, full of sentiment and emotion and over expression. Not that he felt nothing, far from it. Yet he had a certain everyday quality to him, a reservation from deep expression that allowed for a clear and lucid vision. If he encountered remarkable circumstances or events, and he often did, he would treat them as quite ordinary. Or perhaps he would always consider himself quite ordinary in the very extraordinary world. In that sense, throughout his whole life, Hiram Ulysses Grant was the inverse of the mighty Greek hero figure. They were extraordinary men who sought out extraordinary challenges, so that in overcoming them, their deeds and legends would become immortal. He was the ordinary man, who ran up against quite impossible challenges. He then did the impossible because his people, or just circumstance, not some abstract legend, required that someone achieve it. And through it all, the man somehow never forgot that he was mortal. It is of note that, many years later, Grant started his autobiography with several pages describing his family background. In the way of things, this mattered to the people of that age, for they had not forgotten the value of close family ties and memory. And the Grants had as much as any. Although certainly not wealthy, Hiram Grant could indeed trace his lineage back to the early days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, where his first known ancestor, Matthew Grant, arrived. This happened all the way back in 1630. For two centuries then, the Grants had thrived and survived. When the country expanded westward, they joined the migration too. That said, they zigged and zagged all over the place, seemingly never quite content to settle down permanently and make their mark on one city or region. As it happens, they were something of a military family too. Hiram's great-grandfather, Noah Grant, and his brother Solomon Grant, attained commissions. They died fighting in the French and Indian War, also called the Seven Years' War. Noah Grant's son, also called Noah, then fought in the Revolutionary War on the Patriot side, from Bunker Hill to Yorktown. After having two children, Peter and Solomon, Noah Grant's first wife passed away. He then moved to Pennsylvania, and further on to Deerfield, Ohio. This was the frontier in those days. He remarried and would have five children with his second wife, Rachel Kelly. It was from this second union that Jesse Grant, father of Hiram, enters our story. However, Rachel Kelly Grant also died in 1805. For whatever reason, perhaps heartbreak or exhaustion, this fractured Noah Grant's family. He went off to Kentucky to live with his son, Peter. Meanwhile, Jesse Grant and other children split up and lived with different families in Deerfield. Jesse Grant was, therefore, in large part raised in the household of Judge George Todd, an important local figure. When Jesse became old enough to learn a skill, he went off to Kentucky also to learn his trade at the tannery owned by his half-brother, Peter Grant. After several years of apprenticeship, he returned to Deerfield. This time, he stayed with the family of Owen Brown. Now, Owen happened to have a son named John. Evidently, Jesse Grant absolutely no friend of slavery himself, considered the equally young John Brown a radical on the subject. If the family recollections are true, and they might easily be affected by later events, then Jesse Grant judged John Brown to be a man of great purity of character, of high moral and physical courage, but a fanatic and extremist in whatever he advocated. Later on, of course, John Brown would prove exactly that, both in his bloody life in Kansas, and his bloodier raid on Harbour's Ferry. In any case, Jesse completed his apprenticeship and moved on. In 1821, he married Hannah Simpson, who would perhaps take a more central role to play in young Hiram's life than Jesse. As motivated as the father was to further his son's success, Hannah held an equal will within her frame. Quiet where he was loud and gentle where he could be abrasive, Hannah Grant would impart her character to her son. After Hiram was born, the family would move on to the larger and more important county seat of Georgetown. This was in 1823. There Jesse started his own tannery. He would also serve as mayor in 1837. In fact, the family became rather prosperous for the time and location. Their home, for instance, was now a two-story brick affair. This was really quite spacious by the standards of the day. Also, for some reason, they always called Hiram by the name Ulysses or by a shortened form, Euly. And there, in Georgetown, Hiram Eulie Grant would spend almost all of his childhood. As it turned out, he had a few talents to his name. Most notably, it seemed like he had quite an understanding with horses, a nearly mystical connection. Now, to clarify this, we should remember that this was still in the 1820s and 30s. Railroads were as of yet essentially experimental technology still in the very earliest stages of development. They scarcely existed at all beyond the Atlantic region. And even as late as 1850, isolated and separate rail lines only barely began to penetrate the Midwest, although indeed by 1860 they had expanded to the point of transforming society. Therefore, in these times, riding was so normal as to be entirely unremarkable. Basic horsemanship might be expected of any farmer in most townsmen those who could afford it might prefer to ride in carriages. These were all horse-drawn, of course. Beyond that, many people rode in little one-horse hackneys or wagons. The basic point is that it was either horse power or manpower in the main. Managing horses was a skill, but one so common in every day that only exceptional ability attracted notice. Little Uli had exceptional ability, and he attracted notice. In fact, before he even reached the age of ten, he was doing nearly an adult's job, as long as he did it from horseback. He could drive the lumber wagon for the home and tannery. That was a moderately important task on its own, and Jesse would have no slacking on the job. The boy might also casually ride many miles from home for pleasure, and even leave a carriage as far as Cincinnati without supervision. And his skills continued to develop. By his teen years, he might break in horses as readily as any grown man, even to the point that townsfolk would gather to watch him do it. Ulysses also seems to have developed a keen eye for horse flesh, able to spot strong and healthy horses. He certainly developed his own will in the matter, and selected good steeds with care. That said, there were two things he disliked. The first was the tannery itself. Ulysses had no great objections to the business, he just greatly preferred it to be done by someone else. The sight and smell of the tannery business, skin scraped bare of blood and flesh, well, frankly, tanning was a noisome business in the best of times. Having grown up around it, it seems that Uly developed an intense distaste. Indeed, even later in life, he could not stand meat until it had been thoroughly cooked. Steak he must have well done, and he avoided poultry altogether. Somewhat oddly for a country boy, he spent no time hunting, though he enjoyed fishing well enough. The other deficiency in Grant's youth came from his lack of a strong education. While Jesse and Hannah, Grant, kept his nose to studying, there was a great dearth of reading material in western Ohio in those days. Moreover, the educational resources available in Georgetown were rather lackluster, even for a county seat. Grant himself later acknowledged that he was hardly the most studious of boys in any case. That said, he showed a certain interest in mathematics, obtaining his own algebra book. However, he was unable to understand it without guidance, and there was none to be had locally. He did receive a thorough grounding in the basics of education, however, although that would amount to only a very complete grade school course of study today. If not particularly scholarly, young Ulysses Grant had a reputation for honesty, even blind honesty. Cleverness, no, but certainly honest. In one recollection, he wanted to buy a horse when he was only eight. The seller wanted $25, but Jesse said it wasn't worth more than 20 He did give Uly the 25 however, but also some advice about negotiating. The boy promptly went to the seller and said, Papa says I may offer you $20 for the colt, but if you won't take that, to offer you twenty-two and a half, and if you won't take that, to give you twenty-five. Somehow, they agreed on twenty-five. At the age of seventeen, Jesse Grant figured that Hiram Ulysses was old enough to learn a trade or sort out his life in some way, and thought that he might want to go to work in the tannery. Although the young Ulysses agreed dutifully, he allowed that he had no real interest in the work, and would only do it out of loyalty and respect, not desire. Now, Jesse Grant certainly pushed his son to work hard and excel, and he was a bit domineering in the way of patriarchs of that era. And yet, he did not want to force his child into a pre-cut mold. That is only to be expected. Tanners make leather, and to do that they must apply the right kind of chemistry to the type and size of the hide. Then it must be stretched, but only so far. Taking it further renders it useless." so Jesse set about finding some other option for his son. Despite himself, Uli seemed to want a good education, but perhaps was too naive in the way of the world to know exactly what to look for. He had traveled more than some, but seemed uncertain about what direction to pursue in life. Jesse Grant, for all his virtues, did have a tendency to overbear upon Ulysses, although never maliciously. The opportunity came when one of Grant's neighbors, George Bailey, a friend about his own age, left West Point as he was unable to complete the examinations. Although hardly an unusual fate for cadets, his father, also named George, refused to allow him to return home in loathing of the small disgrace. To briefly let you know, the young George Bailey manages fine for himself. When the war came, he helped raise a militia and fought in West Virginia attaining the rank of lieutenant colonel before his death in a skirmish battle on November 10, 1861. He garnered far more glory than most men who graduated West Point. The importance today, however, is that his departure left open a channel for Hiram Ulysses, if he would take it, or rather if his father could and would ask. To get an appointment to West Point in those days required patronage from a congressman. Not every man could obtain that. Conveniently, however, Jesse Grant happened to know the district congressman, a man named Thomas Hamer, as they had been former partners. Unfortunately, the two had split up over a business dispute. Jesse Grant tried to avoid Representative Hamer, instead writing to his state senator. When he received a positive response, he cheerfully told Ulysses. At first taken aback and entirely ignorant of the scheme, the boy responded that he didn't think he would go to far off West Point. Jesse, in this instance, rather firmly insisted. In fact, Eulie had no great objections to the idea and quickly agreed. It was more likely the suddenness of the notion that caused his hesitation. The only concern lay in the fact that Jesse would have to finally approach Hamer over the matter. This he did, if somewhat reluctantly and perhaps fearing the worst. It had turned out there was no concern needed. Thomas Hamer wanted to reconcile as much as Jesse did, and the two promptly put the pass behind them. Hamer requested that young Hiram be granted the appointment, and it was so. There was just one tiny wrinkle. In his haste, Representative Hamer had wrote down the name wrong. Knowing that the family always called Hiram Eulie or Ulysses, he had mistakenly assumed that was the Hiram's given name. This was not so. And, in fact, Hiram often seems to have passed under his first name when signing it or whatever, or sometimes among friends or at school. But that was not all. Having no idea that Ulysses was Young Grant's middle name, Hamer probably realized he had no idea what the boy's full name at all was. He seems to have assumed it must be Simpson after the mother's family name, so he wrote out the request for Ulysses S. Grant. Upon receiving the news of his appointment, The boy, Hiram, made arrangements to travel to New York. This was much farther than he had ever gone from home. Although understandably somewhat nervous about the journey, he soon learned to take joy in the unfamiliar sights, including the first time he'd ever set eyes on a railroad, let alone ride one. Whiling away the hours, he decided that the initials H-U-G spelled hug and might be a bit embarrassing for a man, so he carved U-H-G on his trunk instead. Whether he was now Hiram or Ulysses, he found the trip exhilarating in the end. Seeing the many modern improvements, including canals and other amenities still unfamiliar in western Ohio, he also received the opportunity for some cultural enrichment. During a five-day stopover in Philadelphia, too, he saw many of the historic sites there, and even took a night at one of the popular theaters. Jesse Grant gave him grief when he heard about that, too. And no journey to West Point would be complete without a stopover in the mighty city of New York, mostly because it was rather difficult to actually get to the academy without taking the steamer upriver. During that time, the Ohio country boy met, by chance, another cadet bound for the service, Fred Dent. The two hit it off, with profound influence on Grant's life. Finally, at the end of May 1839, he arrived at West Point. Although somewhat surprised to find that he did indeed pass the entrance examination, young Hiram was somewhat more surprised to find that his name had been somehow changed for him. The Army bureaucracy, as irritating as ever, evidently insisted that its paperwork could not possibly be incorrect. They more or less said that he could enter the academy as Ulysses S. Grant, or not at all. Having no idea what else to do, Hiram surrendered on the matter, and thereby the erstwhile name of Hiram was forgotten and spoken of little more. Of course, his new middle initial, S, remained necessarily just that, an initial It didn't have a meaning or stand for anything. In the coming days, too, his classmates quickly discovered his initials were U.S. Grant, and in the way of young men found this hilarious. They would try to guess at, or more accurately, invent a meaning for him. They finally came up with Sam, and many friends would call him Sam Grant thereafter. Incidentally, it may have been a lad in the class above him, one William Sherman, who invented the nickname. The pair would become fast friends in the future. Yet that first year at West Point did not agree with Ulysses. He found the first two months of training unpleasant, that was a big camp out with daily drill, intended to harden the boys and instill a leaven of military toughness and discipline. Although certainly used to the outdoors, it was not exactly a fun time for anyone, least of all Grant. At least the young men got to bathe in the river, if irregularly. Presumably this occurred whenever their teachers grew tired of the smell of unwashed cadets. Ulysses, used to taking care of himself from a young age on long excursions, perhaps had no concept of tight military order nor the social pecking order of the barracks. Some amount of hazing was, if not exactly lauded, then at least tolerated. And the relatively diminutive Grant, just five feet, and who had never become particularly tall or imposing as a figure, seemed at first like an easy target. When one boy tried to shove him around, however, he quickly discovered that Grant's slender frame held strength enough to knock him down. Wool also neatly taught everyone to leave well enough alone the first year of schooling that followed proved no more pleasant. Although the classroom was, at the least, less tiring, Grant found it no less challenging than the campout. Most irritating for him personally, in those days the curriculum included a strong emphasis on French, instruction in which was mandatory. The reason, in short, was the French Revolution and then Napoleon Bonaparte. The legacy of French success created a generation of exceptional officers and chroniclers who wrote extensively. We should take a moment to note that, in hindsight, the adoration of French militarism looks more than a hair questionable. Yet the preoccupation stretched far beyond just American soil. Many European and colonial officers reveled in the glorious campaigns wrought by Napoleon especially, and they studied the writings left in his wake Long after the man himself died in exile in St. Helena, the shadow of Napoleon loomed large in those days, and ironically, the glory and lessons of the men who triumphed over him seemed to vanish. In the specific, the Academy tended to follow the writings of Antoine Henry Domini, whose strategic concepts dominated the post Napoleonic military conversation. Regardless, Grant had no exposure to French before West Point, and he evidently found it extremely difficult to learn. Indeed, he never did become more than passingly proficient, and that alone was a stretch. He did somewhat better in his other academic work, but the first year certainly proved a trial. Among other problems, it seems like his clothes never quite fit him, always too tight or too loose. He therefore often earned demerits for poor appearance. Nevertheless, young Ulysses made it through that first year. There were a few consolations. He made quite a few friends— among them, James Longstreet, a cousin of Fred Dent. As it turned out, Grant discovered a new love of popular novels. He had had little access to these in Ohio. Perhaps oddly, the West Point Library held quite a few on the shelves. Grant found the stories fascinating, and they excited his interest. He and many other boys chipped in to buy a few books of their own. Now, that first year was hard the point that Ulysses evidently half-hoped West Point would be closed by congressional order, a very real possibility in those days. But after the summer session, another camp out and more drill, young Ulysses seemed to find his footing a bit in the classroom. Although no better off in French studies, he performed credibly enough to stay in the academy. Nearly half his classmates failed to make the cut into the second year with him. After the second year, The cadets received a furlough to visit home. It was but a short excursion, as even a two-month holiday required a week or more of travel back and forth for most of the cadets. Still, Grant would finally see his family again, and they noted that he had grown. Taller, yes, but he now stood up straight as his frame allowed. Characteristically, he hardly noticed the change and simply acknowledged that the academy made him stand like that then it was back to the classroom at West Point. The third and fourth year curriculum was, in the main, far more engaging for the cadets. Among other things, the young men studied art under the remarkable Robert Walton Weir. Mr. Weir, whose works include portraits of many prominent notables, such as General-in-Chief Winfield Scott, as well as landscapes in the Hudson River School, was a self-taught artist, Who sought to develop not only the tactical skills of his students, but also to spark their artistic sensibilities. He succeeded in quite a few cases, including with Cadet Grant. Now, although Ulysses would only leave behind a few drawings in his own hands, they reveal a clear eye for detail, but also for the essence or emotion of a piece. Arguably, he actually had the talent to have become a great artist if he so chose. Now, academically, Cadet Grant had gained a certain amount of facility with mathematics as well, and he apparently began to think about the possibilities for a future career in that area. He did still struggle with some aspects of his education. Although performing in the upper half of his class in subjects such as engineering and geology, he found himself lacking with the artillery or cavalry tactics courses. That said, Cadet Grant did stand at the top of his class in one area horsemanship no one could match him there let alone exceed his ability as a boy he could ride a trick horse traveling with a fair that was trained to throw off riders as a cadet he could handily ride the meanest and wildest steed as easily as sitting in his classroom chair during the graduation exercises cadets first performed their horseback routines and then cleared a path when west point's riding instructor lifted a bar, and placed it above head height. The sergeant then called out, Cadet Grant? That was the signal, and Ulysses, who had mounted that very spirited steed named York, spurred onward. He rushed down the path in the writing hall, and then, in a single powerful leap, soared through the air and over the bar. He set an academy record that would stand unchallenged for a full quarter-century. At the end of his four years, Lieutenant Grant received his commission, and he had to decide a few things. He would necessarily do a couple years' work for the Army, but whether he would stay in it thereafter was still an open question. He would also have to request his assignment. As a middling cadet, he could not hope to have much of a choice in the matter. Being a skilled horse rider, he applied for a post on the cavalry, The engineers or artillery, well, that was far beyond it. Unfortunately, at this time, the entire American Cavalry Service amounted to a single regiment, and they had no openings. He therefore reluctantly provided his second choice, an appointment to the 4th U.S. Infantry, which in time went through and he received approval. A couple factors lay behind that. At the time, the 4th Infantry were detailed the Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, so first, provided nobody went and O oh, declared war, it promised to be a relatively quiet posting. Now second, the post promised that Grant would be among some friends and uh, classmates. Third, it perhaps also would allow him to see a bit more of the world, and yet still have a reasonably convenient way to visit family if he so chose. After all, he had only seen them one time in the past four years— The lieutenant, who returned home to visit his family just after leaving West Point, looked quite a bit different than the boy who left four years ago. Not just older or taller, but thinner too. Having caught a nasty and persistent cough late in his time at West Point, Ulysses only recovered slowly and had lost weight. He had gone to school just over five feet tall. He left five foot seven, as tall as he would ever reach but he weighed the same, less than 120 pounds soaking wet, as he entered the school. Later in life he would fill out a bit, but not necessarily that much. And yet he had grown in other ways, too. A bit more worldly now, the man had discovered a love of modern literature, such as Bulwer and Sir Walter Scott. Time would reveal that he had not disowned his father's anti-slavery principles, but he displayed much less patience for his father's driving mannerisms or self-importance. Jesse Grant was, after all, a local notable at best. Grant had now met legends, says General Winfield Scott eye to eye. In fact, while still at home on leave, his new army uniform arrived. Excited to try it on and see how he would look as an officer, he promptly donned it and went riding through Cincinnati, Ohio he would never forget the public response. No, he would certainly never forget it. He rode down one street only to see a brat less than half his age mock him as a tin-plate soldier. And by the time he returned home, having visited a friend, he received the heartwarming sight of an inebriated stablehand merrily marching around in mockery, wearing some clothes done up to resemble the now-hated uniform. Even years after, Grant did not forget the sight, nor the feeling of it. He would always respect the military, even when he disliked aspects of the service. But he never would come to love the uniform itself. On the other hand, he also learned a valuable lesson. Americans would not blindly respect a man in uniform. If he wanted the esteem of his countrymen, he'd have to earn it. So it was that a somewhat dejected Lieutenant Grant arrived to report at Jefferson Barracks, on september thirty first eighteen forty three he grew to enjoy his time there. however, St. Louis was then in its heyday and the barracks located close by town. In addition, his commander, Colonel Stephen Kearney, taught him valuable lessons of good and effective leadership. Kearney demanded smart performance always, but he was also no Martinet, trying to make his men miserable in the odd belief that it somehow gets results in fact. Lieutenant Grant, if not exactly a great scholar, was already looking towards his future. He wrote back to West Point and requested a position as an assistant professor of mathematics. If his classroom performance had not been exemplary, it seemed that many respected the depths of his mind. West Point professor Dennis Hart Mahan later noted, Grant's mental machine is of the powerful low-pressure class, which pushes steadily forward and drives all obstacles before it. Now, Grant quickly received a positive response from West Point, and anticipated returning there with the very next opening. In the meantime, he had mathematics books to study. But he also began to study for a markedly different challenge. Romance. You see, when Lieutenant Fred Dent heard that his old friend and classmate Grant had a post at St. Louis, he wrote and declared that, well, Grant must go and see the Dent family. Now, we have not carefully explored Fred Dent or his family. However, they were slaveholders, and their family home, called White Haven, lay only five miles from St. Louis. While Ulysses seemed much more tolerant on the matter than his father, the one real disagreement he and Fred Dent ever had, nearly to the point of brawling over it, came from slavery. Grant diffused the situation when he realized how absurd a fistfight would be, and he burst out laughing but friends were friends, and Ulysses was, well, not his father. He called upon the Dent family courteously one day, and this was hardly unusual, for the Dents in their home were popular with officers from the barracks. James Longstreet, now a fellow officer at Jefferson Barracks, was also related to the Dents, which helped smooth the social gears. Ulysses' grant happened by again in February of 1844, and something unexpected occurred he met Julia Dent, the daughter of the family. Julia, 18 at a time, and just returned from school, seems to have almost immediately attracted Ulysses' eye. Although somewhat plain in looks, she had a sparkling personality. Grant's interest did not go unchallenged, for several other men from St. Louis sought her hand. But he and Julia had a few things in common. They shared a love of literature and art, and they both enjoyed writing like the wind, soon enough his visits became routine and the pair would take considerable joy in a ride at dawn her father colonel dent looked at ulysses growing interest with a wary eye although more because he questioned ulysses finances rather than his character but her mother seemed to support the match they had little time to sort out the matters of the heart however lieutenant grant could see that tensions were rising with mexico as the annexation of texas became inevitable He had long conversations over the subject, with the dents at dinner. He could see that the tensions were rising, and it was rumored that the regiment might be ordered down towards Texas. Anticipating that his regiment could receive fresh orders, he requested and received a furlough to visit home. But he first rode to Whitehaven, however, and offered Julia his class ring. Now, it may have been a class ring, not a wedding ring, but the meaning was clear. She declined, although she later said that she was a bit too naive in the waves of romance to accept right at that moment. Grant heard that his regiment was bound for Louisiana almost at the same time that he boarded a steamer for Cincinnati. However, he had not received a clear message to return a messenger had actually missed him, and so assumed that his leave remained valid. He did journey homeward, but kept finding that his thoughts seemed unwilling to leave Julia behind so easily. When he returned to Jefferson Barracks, he requested just a brief extension of the leave from Lieutenant Richard Ewell, who would accompany Colonel Kearney to California next year. This allowed, Grant immediately rode off to White Haven to see Julia one more time. It seemed that absence had indeed made the two hearts grow fonder. He braved a storm, and Creek swole into a raging torrent to reach her that day. This time, when he left again after a couple long conversations, well, this time Julia kept the ring with her. She also kept it secret from her father, although quite possibly the colonel had a pretty good idea. Now Grant then joined the rest of his regiment at Camp Salubrity down in Louisiana, They had but little to do there except enjoy the gleeful ministrations of mosquitoes, and Lt. Grant seems to have passed the time by writing to Julia. The army lay waiting for political matters to move forward. The annexation of Texas crept ever closer, but this also brought the United States into potential conflict with Mexico. Yet day after day, nothing quite seemed to happen on the matter. Nine months after arriving at Camp Salubrity, Grant received another leave. He promptly sped off down the Red River so he could take the steamer up to Mississippi once again to see Julia. This time, he also wanted to make his intentions plain to the colonel. Well, frankly, Grant's intentions were rather obvious to old Colonel Dent. Papa Dent teased him a bit, offering that perhaps Grant really should be taking interest in his other daughter. But of course he accepted the matter. He could respect the young lieutenant in his study, and who had come so far and felt almost like part of the family. So, too, it now seemed that Lieutenant Grant's interest in Julia was no passing feeling. Once all these matters of state had been settled down, Colonel Dent might cheerfully see his beloved daughter married off. When Lieutenant Grant returned to the camp, however, he had but a scant few months more until fresh news from the borders of Mexico beckoned. In September. The troops would sail from New Orleans to Texas, part of the force assigned as General Zachary Taylor. General Taylor would hardly note another junior lieutenant in the service. But Grant most definitely noticed him. For the rest of his days, he consciously modeled himself on Taylor's example. It was no idle flattery, but rather a signal lesson in how to lead American men. His previous concept... Of the military looked more like General Scott, old fuss and feathers, a man who wore his uniform with every emblem and decoration provided for or allowed. Scott, in one respect, embodied a modern, elegant, European approach to warfare. Zachary Taylor emphatically did not. Old Rough and Ready needed no uniform to command, his presence was enough. He talked to the officers sharper than the men, whom he looked after like a father. General Taylor didn't force Americans to reshape themselves into soldiers. He trusted they would do it, and they did because they respected him as one of them. He earned that respect by placing himself on their level, showing he was every bit as tough as the volunteers and militia, and he would fight and die by their side. So it was that young Lieutenant Grant arrived in Texas, just in time to experience a new world of adventures. He was a soldier, somehow and yet he never meant to be. Whether he was Hiram Ulysses Grant, or Eulie or Ulysses Hiram Grant, or Ulysses S. Grant, or Sam Grant, well, he never intended to become Soldier Grant. Even a year earlier, he thought of teaching mathematics, not warfare, and he offered to Colonel Dent that he would gladly leave the service if he could have Julia's hand in marriage. Even a year earlier, he thought of teaching mathematics, not warfare. Unlike many future officers, he did not hunger after advancement in the ranks nor for glorious battles. He entered West Point without seeking it, and largely by chance only because someone else failed. Never the most studious of boys, he struggled with the curriculum. And yet, after all that, he made it through. And there he was in 1845, in an American army building camp at the mouth of the Rio Grande, here on the beaches of Texas stood Ulysses, an accidental soldier. Now, before we close today, I wanted to have just a very brief uh, anecdote that I couldn't work in elsewhere, but I thought was really funny. (laughs) Uh, This actually occurred when Grant was at West Point. Now, the thing was, they... they had very prescribed times when the cadets were allowed to eat, and it seems that many of them would get hungry outside of that, but of course they weren't, like, allowed to get something to eat, so they found many ingenious ways to sneak food in. Uh, at one point, the smell of roast chicken seemed to be spreading throughout part of the barracks, and one of the officers came by and basically knocked on the door, and, and usually four cadets uh, in the first couple of years would share a, share a room. And he sort of looked and said, Yeah, I'm smelling uh, I'm smelling chicken cooking. And uh, Grant just sort of looked at him, stared him right in the eye and said, Oh, yes, sir, I've noticed that. <laughs> and the officer thought the response was so calm and collected that he just <laughs> smiled and let him go back to it. Now, speaking of Zachary Taylor, who is going to become uh, very important, especially uh, in our next episode, there's a really interesting contrast in certainly a lot of cultures between officers who, I guess you could say, lead from the top and officers who lead from the front. And there's different ways to express this in different cultures. Uh, It's not going to look the same in, say, the Roman army versus the American army. Uh, But there's certainly a sense that some officers hold themselves above the men, they order, and they expect to be obeyed. And other officers are sort of right there among the men. They basically live like the soldiers, they eat like the soldiers, and they often act like the soldiers. This is not the same thing as being a good officer or a bad officer. There have been exceptional officers of both schools. And in fact, both Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott show very different leadership styles. But at the same time, they were were both extraordinarily talented and capable men. Zachary Taylor really seemed to understand the personality of sort of the average American volunteer. And, of course, he had many unskilled militiamen in his ranks who didn't necessarily have a lot of the military drill or discipline that you might expect. And rather than to try and turn them into model soldiers, what he did is say, I'm going to get the most out of these men that I can. And these men came from Texas, they came from Illinois, they came from Georgia, they came from New York, they came from Maine, they came from Maryland, they came from everywhere. So they didn't necessarily have a whole lot in common. Many of them would have never seen anything outside of their local area, but he managed to weld them all into a pretty effective force. Now, the final thing that I want to close on is the idea that Grant's life really fits the mold of The fool very, very well. Now, The Fool is, you'll see it used in tarot, but it actually goes back to earlier literary sources. The Fool is ultimately just the average, ordinary, everyday hero. Rather than taking his destiny in his hands, he often feels blown about by the winds of fate, driven this way or that. And in that sense, too, Ulysses is a remarkably apt name for the man and his life. In any case, this has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.